Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Health Promotion Agency of New Zealand. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler and today I'm talking to Professor Bruce Errol about stress, its manifestations and simple techniques to help yourself and your patients. Bruce is a Professor of General Practice and Primary Health Care at the University of Auckland and he practices at Greenstone Family Clinic in South Auckland. He does regular general practice sessions and also has special consultations using BACT, Focused Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, for people who are feeling stuck in their lives by stress, pain or low energy. He does this work with his own patients and those who are referred from his clinic from colleagues. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you. So, Bruce, today we're discussing stress. Let's start with a definition. How do you define stress? Well, I guess I'd describe stress as the the body's natural reaction to danger or when too much is expected of a person. And one way to think of that is um, what, what is it that's important to me that is at risk here, like it could be your job, your family, um, or a relationship, and then to think about, well, what's at risk, and then you know it's important to you. Another way of looking at that would be that perhaps your values are at risk, um, your family, your children, or something that's important to you. So it's when there's a risk to something that's important to you, and our natural reaction to that is a so-called stress reaction. So the body turns on adrenaline and cortisol and other chemicals. So Bruce, most health practitioners would describe their jobs and their lives as relatively stressful. Why is it important for us to be self-aware as a primary care provider? Well, I think if we're not careful and we get into situations, for example, when too much is expected of you, that we can start uh, going downhill, going down the rabbit hole, uh, for want of a better word. And so I think we have to be careful to recognize when we are getting stressed. And I call that one's life dashboard warning light. So a bit like when you're driving your car along and the uh, fuel sign comes on and says you're running out of fuel. Um, and you would immediately go and get fuel reasonably quickly or certainly within within you know minutes rather than hours and i think we have to learn the same thing with our bodies so um, learning learning to recognize those early warning signs and they come in two packages really one being uh, physical symptoms so people will start feeling their heart race uh, they're breathing faster they may experience pain in their stomach they may start sweating uh, they may start breathe, breathing faster or hyperventilating so that's the physical signs uh, then there's also behavioral signs when we start to avoid our normal tasks uh, such as um, not wanting to go to work, not wanting to engage with our friends, um, not wanting to do things with our partners, uh, avoiding our family, avoiding exercise. And then um, uh, sometimes if it gets too bad, spending more time in bed when we're not asleep, that's a particularly dangerous thing to do, having too many long naps during the day. And finally, 
increase in substance use, like having a nice drink can be fairly soothing, but that can be a slippery slope and you start um, you know, you have one one drink, one night, two drinks, the next night, three drinks, the next, and the next minute you're having a bottle of wine or three or four beers a night. And that, of course, is what I would call an avoidance activity. So you've got to stop those avoidance activities and go back to your normal phase. Um, and, and the other thing is stopping exercising. Uh, it's very unusual to see people who are stressed, who are physically fit, although as I was telling you before, I have a colleague in Wanaka who says everybody down there is physically fit, um, even when they're stressed. But I think the average patient in my practice, when they're distressed, that's one of the first things they give up. And I use my dashboard warning, like my personal one, is when I don't want to go to the gym, that I know I need to go to the gym. And so I try and uh, – so the first thing I try and do is get to the gym as soon as possible, and that gets me back in the river of life and um, I start functioning well again. So dealing with the avoidance is absolutely critical. I think, Bruce, it's often important for us to discuss stress with our patients, but sometimes it's difficult to ask about stress. Do you have any tips or techniques how to broach this question? Um, I often ask people, have you been under any stress lately, particularly in the patient when they've got um, vague symptoms? I'll just say that again, uh, particularly in the situation where patients have vague symptoms and you're not coming to a biomedical diagnosis, then you want to think of, well, is there something psychosocial going on here? And the easiest way in is to do... Um, a uh, is to ask about stress. I've got a shortcut question called an emotional quality of life question. So how's your emotional quality of life now if 100's perfect and zero's worst imaginable and anything below 50 is highly associated with a PHQ9 greater than 10. So that immediately, so any low score says that they, they've got some level of distress. They can still be distressed over 50, but definitely below 50, there's going to be um, quite a bit of problem at that, at that level. Or do a PHQ-9 and or a GAD-7 or any of those things. And if people are over threshold, and I find when they fill out the form, they accept the diagnosis. And I don't know whether that's just because I've got better and more confident at saying to people, well, this would suggest that you're under some sort of stress at the moment. Uh, people do seem to accept it. I've got I've got more confident as I've got more experienced, and I do find people accept they've got a diagnosis of stress. I don't use the words depression or anxiety anymore. I tend to use the words distress or stuck, because I think those those are very big labels, and um, they can change very quickly as people get better. Uh, the other thing is you get familiar with the scoring levels. For example, a PHQ-9 of 15 or more, you know the patient's going to be having trouble going to work. So I'll often say to people, well, you're scoring pretty high on this. My guess is you're having trouble going to work. Is that, is that the case? And that can be, you know, that can be quite nice. They realize you're, um, you're on the same page as them. There is a situation where about 10% of people deny any any psychosocial, so they're very somatic in their thinking. And of course, you have to learn to dance with them in primary care. And we dance with these people every day in primary care. Um, so you, it can be very difficult to get into that that psychosocial stuff. But of course, you still have to do some investigations. You can't put everything down to stress because we've all had the situation where the person's got a tension headache and they end up with a brain tumor. So that's always the, the horror show 
of uh, of primary care really. Um, so, but I think we we're we're, we're pretty good at um, dancing between the the biomedical and the psychosocial. It's a key primary care skill. Bruce, I wonder too. Having worked in South Auckland, have you noticed a difference between different populations? Because you do have a very diverse population out there. Are there certain populations that cope better with stress or have different coping mechanisms? What have you noticed? I would say um, Maori patients have amazing coping mechanisms. And I think if they come in um, generally, and there's some evidence to back this up, they will come in talking of physical things rather than psychological things. They don't generally come in and say, I'm feeling depressed, I'd want an antidepressant. That's more uh, Pākehā or European presentation in my experience. Um, But there can be tremendous levels of suffering that um, that you have to work your way around to. And so I would say they have a particularly high threshold for presenting or low threshold. They're much, much less likely to present with a with a psychosocial type thing. So they, they can take a few steps to get to um, other ethnicities uh, somewhere in between. So, yeah, that, that would be what I would see in, in South Auckland. So, Bruce, what techniques can we use personally or with our patients to help deal with stress? Well, there's a number of things. Um, with the avoidance behaviours, you can say, does that help? So, does uh, spending all day in bed, does that help? Um, does drinking alcohol or all weekend help? And I find patients almost to a person will say no. It's quite interesting how we can keep doing stuff even though it's not helping us. And there's a term for this called contextual insensitivity. The patient has become insensitive to the feedback they're getting or not getting from their environment. So although they spend all day in bed, they don't feel any better, but they keep doing it because they've lost that that sensitivity. Until you say to them, um, does that help? And they will say no. And I say, well, would you be willing, always would you be willing to try something different? Would you be willing to cut down the amount of alcohol you are drinking? Now, I always say to people, I don't have any moral issue with alcohol. It's purely a health thing that um, alcohol helps you fly now, but you pay later. So that's, in a sense, people getting a short-term benefit from their um, alcohol, but makes them feel worse in the long term. And then when I'm encouraging people to get on with things, I will often say, well, when when your mind's telling you to sit down and have a muffin and watch some television, I'd like you to to remind yourself or remember when you went to the gym last time and how you felt afterwards. And most people feel better after doing some exercise. So trust your experience, not what your mind's saying. It's a very important line and act. Um, and we have to learn for personal things, we should not trust our mind so much, but trust our experience. It's probably a better, uh, a better um, guide for our behavior than what our minds are saying. Because here's the thing, your mind, your mind is trying to keep you alive and it doesn't care whether you're happy or not. Um, it, it's just trying to keep you alive. So it's, so when you get stressed, Um, you've turned on the smoke alarm, if you like. And as my friend Tim Keneally says, the mind can't tell whether um, 
the smoke alarm's gone off because the toaster's burning or your house is on fire. From the mind's point of view, it's all the same thing. There's something dangerous out there and you need to watch out for it and you need to be taking evasive action. So the the taking evasive action is quite important. So um, the first step in recognizing stress is, as we said before, um, being aware of your dashboard warning light. And as I said, my one is I don't want to go to the gym. So that took me about 40 years to learn. But um, uh, I'm a slow learner, but I've actually managed to to get that one out. And then the second step is to notice that um, it's, it's something important happening to you, that there's something at risk here that's important to you. And try and welcome that thought. So that's what we call a reframe in talk therapy. So instead of thinking, this is a horrible, scary thing, uh, saying to yourself, well, this is something that's important and I care about it. And that's why my heart is racing and my palms are sweating and I'm worrying about it. It's, it's clearly important to me. So then there's two options. One is to try and do something about it. So take some action. So use that stress to do something because that's what we're designed to do. That, so we're doing something with the fight or flight. So those are two options. So if it's your tax form and you're not doing it, just go and do it. And I'm sure we've all had that situation where we leave something and leave it and leave it and leave it. And it gets more and more stressful. We sit down and do it and think, well, actually, that wasn't that bad after all. Um, and then there's other, then there's the, so that's the practical, that's when there's a practical physical world problem. If it's a personal problem, our minds can't fix that. So with, with the personal problem, when somebody insults you at work or your boss isn't treating you very well or a patient complains about you, uh, that's essentially a personal problem and our problem solving will not generally fix that. And that's the problem with humans. We've got this wonderful problem solving machine that can solve your tax problem, fix your car, fix your phone, uh, but it can't help with being insulted at work. And with those problems, you have to learn to hold those feelings lightly. And I cup my fingers. I put my fingers through uh, left hand, through the right hand, and cup my hands as if I'm holding water. And uh, that I call holding lightly. And this is a skill I teach patients. So when something personal happens to you, just learn to hold it lightly. Because, and I, this is the line I use, there's no delete button in the human brain. So you just need to hold these uncomfortable feelings lightly until they pass. And this may take some some effort and some training, but that, that's an important thing to do. So if you've ever woken up at three o'clock in the morning, and I still occasionally wake up at three o'clock in the morning, you know you're problem solving a personal problem. Because if it was easy to solve, you'd solve it and go back to sleep. But you start to ruminate and go over it and over it and, um, and then the solution has become the problem. So that's another act line. The solution has become the problem because A, you're worried about work and B, you've got insomnia now and then you're not, you're, not, you're not well rested to go to work. So you've got a double problem then. So those, those are the sort of the three steps. So recognizing it, acknowledging it's important and then doing something about it, either in the physical real world or in the personal world and there hold it lightly. So those, that's the one, two, three of dealing with stress. One of the other things I've heard you talk about over the years, Bruce, is when your life becomes narrow, you need to reconnect with the river of life. I wonder yes. if you can talk us through this. 
So we're reconnecting with the river of life. That's um, getting back in touch with your um, social world. In fact, when people are stressed, if I haven't got much time, I'll say to them, you know, the problem in general practice, of course, is somebody tells you at minute 14 that they've lost their job and their wife's left them, you know, and suddenly you've got um, a psychosocial uh, event on your hands. And so if I'm really short of time, I'll say, look, I, it sounds like things are really bad for you. I, I hear that. Um, can we meet um, as soon as possible, you know, later that day, tomorrow, within a few days, if that's possible? Um, and in the meantime, I want you to contact a friend or a family me member and expand your social world and start doing some exercise. So two, the first two things I do, and it's interesting, those things, getting in touch with friends and uh, not uh, reducing your exercise, the play thing, were the two things that related um, to a low mood when we look when we analyze these things. So I have a form called a work love play form. It's on brucearrell.com and it's free. And we have it in our clinic. And we have so it's work, lovers and friends, lovers and intimates, lovers and family, and play. And it's lovers and friends which goes first and play which goes first. And of course, they're the things you can change pretty quickly. Hard to change the jobs quickly, hard to change your intimate partner quickly, and hard to change your family quickly. But getting in touch with your friends is easy. Uh, and usually they'll wonder why you haven't been in touch with them. That's usually the problem. They might be a bit upset you haven't been in touch with them. Um, and and play, doing some pleasurable activities, doing um, doing exercise. Exercise is the royal road to good health. Um, if somebody's unfit and they're in pain and they're stressed, the first thing to do, um, and it's highly unlikely they'll be physically fit unless it's their job, uh, they're a personal trainer or they're a professional sports person. Invariably, that's, that's the stuff that goes. So long-term unchecked stress, you've already alluded to some health issues like anxiety, insomnia and chronic pain. Let's talk about these for a moment. Okay. Well, I think the key thing with patients with chronic pain is to get them physically fit before you start prescribing for them. We know with knee osteoarthritis, the numbers needed to treat are four, four to get rid of the pain. And the numbers needed to treat for drugs are nowhere near as good as that. So make sure your patients are physically fit. And I think you have to push it. You have to say, this is really important. You know, before you start taking medicines which can harm you, um, and we actually haven't got a lot of medicines that are very good for pain. It really is, um, you know, and as I like saying to the medical students, most drugs don't work for most people. Otherwise, the numbers needed to treat would be one or two. And there's no painkillers that have a numbers needed to treat a one or two, except if you break your wrist and you have some morphine. I mean, that's different. Acute pain is different, um, but chronic pain is uh, a very difficult proposition. And of course, stress makes that worse. So you've got to almost invariably, you need to check the mood of patients with chronic pain and get them active. Uh, and get them active, if possible, in a group setting. Uh, there's, there's potentially additional advantages from doing exercise as a group. 
We um, we are social animals, and we actually enjoy doing things with other people. And that's why people like going to gyms and doing dance classes and fitness classes. You know, um, there's that um, there's that life giving force that comes from doing things um, in sync. My wife and I were doing an online exercise class, and there was a live a live instructor, and I made sure I was doing things in sync with her, and and the instructor says, oh, that's really good. It's really good to see. And you can see how that was having a, a feedback effect. The two of us were moving side to side and up and down um, uh, in sync with each other. And uh, it was it was quite interesting to watch. Um, and it's, it's like soldiers marching. There's that feeling of being together with a whole group of people, uh, the, the people who do um, – uh, marching as a as an activity, it's sort of gone out of fashion a bit, but I'm sure they get the same sort of buzz out of doing physical activity with with a group of other people. There are, there are a few other things that can happen um, uh, long term. I think um, I think we have to get our patients to realise that that things like pain, physical pain, and emotional pain are to be expected. And I quite like the act saying that suffering is optional. We can't get rid of suffering. To be a human being is to suffer physical pain and emotional pain. We're going to have loss. We all have loss in our lives. And if we long enough, live long enough, we're going to have a lot of it. So I, I prefer the term of learning to live with ease. So I don't promise people I can get rid of their pain, but I can help them to live with ease. And getting them physically fit and dealing with their stress is probably the best way to deal with, uh, with chronic pain. And, and the same with sleep. The other thing that goes with sleep would be good sleep, high Hygiene is very important. Just a regular bedtime. Um, if you're not asleep within 20 minutes, get up and get out of bed. Um, don't have long naps during the day. Don't have naps after three o'clock in the afternoon. There's a few basic things that can make a huge difference. Um, in some of the trials we've done, uh, 30% of people get better with just simple uh, sleep hygiene, just a regular bedtime. It's surprising how people don't know that, but um, you often have to go back to basics with patients. And then, of course, there's the old-fashioned depression and anxiety, um, which which can affect sleep, but that that's a whole different talk. Um, the other thing is sometimes people with long-term distress have trouble with a lack of self-kindness or self-compassion. And those are people who can show kindness to others, but they have difficulty showing kindness to themselves. I often get those people to go to Kristen Neff's website. That's N-E-F-F. -F. It's called uh, selfcompassion.org or compassion.org. Um, and uh, there's a test there you can do because if you can't show kindness to yourself, you're going to be involved in a lot of suffering. About a third of the patients I see who I call distressed, my patients or the ones that are referred to me, have issues with self-kindness. So, um, so that's where you need to start looking at um, compassion, uh, learning, getting the patient to cultivate the voice of self-kindness in their minds. It's a little mantra I say to myself. So if I'm driving along the motorway and somebody cuts me off and I'm contemplating road rage, I just say to myself, Bruce, 
cultivate the voice of self-kindness. And I can feel my adrenal glands stopping the adrenaline, stopping the cortisone very quickly. You just feel your whole body calms down. So it's a very massive reframe that just, just cultivate the voice of self-kindness. The other thing about that is is the tone with which people talk to themselves. So people who don't have self-kindness will say some horrible things to themselves, things they would never say to others, they would say say to themselves. So so that's something you can ask people, what's the tone of the conversation in your mind um, that you're having with yourself at the moment? And if it's negative, then you might want to um, deal with that. Uh, as an issue in itself. So that's also part of the stress package, but that's a slightly more advanced step. And to conclude our podcast today, Bruce, some take-home messages for our listeners, please. Well, the take-home message, I guess, would be learning to recognize your life dashboard warning light. Very important for doctors and nurses and health professionals because it's easy to get overloaded. Um, Acknowledge that uh, that your distress is about something that's important to you, that these are your values that may be at stake here, and then either use that energy of distress to do something about it and just get on with it, And remember, if you're a procrastinator, now is later and later is now. So just get on with it. Or if it's something personal, don't problem solve it, hold it lightly. So the two things. So don't use the problem solving part of your brain for something personal. It does not know how to deal with that. It doesn't know how to turn the alarm off, basically. The only way to turn the alarm off is to hold it lightly. And and then you can learn to live with ease. Thank you, Bruce. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. You'll also find a list of resources, including our fabulous GEMS and e-learning modules. Thank you for listening.